It's been good for me to be here this morning. Thank you so much, Paul and Trish, Bronze, for sharing beautiful words and uh, very inspiring. Uh, just really appreciate that. That kind of talent is uh, used for the edification of the body. Wanted to make one announcement before we get into the message, uh, and it's something that I actually had we had talked about at our last pastoral meeting, and I forgot to mention it to the rest of the team this morning. But um, I want to let you know because later on next Sunday we want to actually uh, talk about this or, or vote on it or, or at least give us a vote of support. But it's in relation to Levon and Beth, and uh, as they have shown interest in going to uh, Myanmar and uh, under DNI. And uh, we as a pastoral team are recommending that we give them the support to go ahead with the application. They have not yet written an application. They've uh, begun the process. But we would like, it's very important to them, and it's important, very important to us as a pastoral team as well, that they do so with the support of the, of the congregation here. I think that's a biblical mandate and a biblical example that they are sent out by the congregation. So we're looking to you. Uh, and we'd like to just, if, if there's any kind of hesitation, if there's any kind of word of support or whatever it is, we're going to give you a week. And if there's anything, give some feedback to us. If not, next Sunday we would look to you to just show your uh, vote of support in them moving forward with an application. Now with that, it's going to require uh, responsibility on our part we don't know what that is yet. We're just taking it a step at a time, okay? So I wish I could stand here and tell you what all that means. I don't. But uh, we're just here taking a step of faith, and we'll just see how God opens that door according to how he speaks through you. So keep that in mind. Pastoral team, if you want to help me remember to take that up next Sunday, I'd appreciate that. Well, welcome to this sunrise service. <coughs> it is... Uh, it is good to be here, and uh, we, uh, the title that I've given the message this morning is Revealing the Heart of Jesus, and um, it's a joy to be able to celebrate this occasion with the family of God. I think it seems appropriate to make this particular day a special occasion uh, when it has such a, an impact on believers. According to one statistic, it appears that Easter is one occasion where um, that, that brings a lot of people out to church in an alarming, declining, church-going society. According to many statistics, attending church is less than 50%. And uh, that's alarming but we see a high spike on this day. Now, some, of, some people might look at that and be encouraged by it. Uh, I'm saddened by it. Um, I, I, I'm glad to see people come out on a day like this, but when I see these kinds of spikes in attendance at church, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm saddened by that kind of result. Because I, I suspect that those spikes that we see in a graph like that is probably by those who don't, it's not as much by those who don't claim to be Christians as by those who would claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. And uh, the, I, I guess I, I would just ask the question, is that true Christianity? Should true Christianity live categorically like that? And... Um, I would like to suggest that true Christianity should show a straight line across there. And um, I would wish that we would see that across the board much, much more so. I just think that as little Christ, as Christians, we should be plugged in to a body where we can have a family relationship a value of 24-7 Christianity. And so I'm just putting in that little plug for whatever it's worth. I am glad to be able to celebrate this Easter morning with each one of you 
and which I consider family in my life. I've been given this message significant thought in the last uh, several months, and uh, while it's possibly not the kind of traditional Easter message that we that we would maybe uh, talk about traditionally on Easter, it does reflect an aspect of our resurrected Lord that I think is worthy of our discussion. The story is set sort of in the final stages of Jesus' ministry here on the earth. It is only recorded in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and it is not seen in the other synoptic Gospels. And as a result, we have a little bit of a difficult time sort of comparing notes to when this account actually takes place. But I would guess that it's on the backside of Jesus' earthly ministry. Probably within several weeks, maybe several months before his death and resurrection. If we back up a few chapters... In the book of Luke, we would see in chapter 13, verse 22, it says that he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. So we see that he's heading towards Jerusalem. And then the next time, according to Luke, we have indication of his whereabouts in chapter 17, verse 11. It says, now it happened as he went to Jerusalem, so he's still heading towards Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. (laughs) Then at the end of chapter 18, we also have indication that he passed through Jericho, and that is where he healed the blind man, and where he had the encounter with Zacchaeus. Okay? And then right after that, uh, right after the encounter with Zacchaeus, In chapter 19, verse 11, he says he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. And then right after that, we have the account how that he went into the triumphal entry into Jerusalem the final week before his death. So it would appear that the the, the message that the setting, chapter 15, that we're going to talk about today probably was on the back end of his ministry. I'm sure that the cross was in his mind as he was sharing what we want to talk about today. It would appear that way. <clears throat> and so that is where we find this, uh, this setting. With this in mind, we can then see the intensity uh, in, the, in the numerous accounts, in chapters 13, from chapters 13 to 19, a lot of parables were spoken by Jesus. And particularly the parables that, that, that were recorded in those chapters, they are hard-hitting and highly impacting if we take the time to see what the message is really about. So even though the resurrection hadn't happened, uh, it had not yet transpired, we are certainly leading up to that occasion, okay? So I want to I set that stage and uh, keep that time frame in mind when we, when we talk about chapter 15 like we want to look at this morning. <clears throat> now, for something different this morning, I want, to, I want you to take your Bibles. If you've already opened up to chapter 15 of Luke, close your Bibles, okay? We're not going to read the account up here on the PowerPoint I don't want you to read it out of your Bible. What I want you to do is lay your Bible to the side. I want you to stand up. Those who conveniently can stand up, I want you to stand up. (coughs) And uh, I want you to do something a little bit different. Um, I'm going to read you the account. And to close your eyes as I read, okay? And what I want you to do is think about being there with Jesus for the first time that this story was being related to the people. Imagine yourself now, now think of him being here today. Think of 21st century, okay? Don't think of him in in, in a long robe and sandals, okay? 
Think of him standing here. I'm not Jesus, but think of you hearing these stories for the very first time. Okay? I'm going to read it, and you listen in. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety in the wilderness and go after the blood until he And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, a house, until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me! I have found the peace which was lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided, this, he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the young son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. <clears throat> but when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him to the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, Any of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I against heaven and before you and am no longer worthy to be called your son make me like one of your hired servants and he arose and he came to his father but when he was still a great way off his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him and the son said to him father I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older brother, his older son, was in the field. And he came and drew near the house he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to him, Father, Sorry. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandments at any time, and you you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this your son came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
Father, as we look at this word that you spoken many years ago, may you rightly divide it to our hearts. In your name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I apologize about my voice. I woke up with a sore throat and a bit scratchy, but I'll do my best. Allow me to make several preliminary comments to set the stage for the remainder of the uh, message. Okay, I'm having some difficulty here. Okay. Josh, could you set this so that I can... Sorry, you're back there. Let me just real quickly here. Um, I'm not quite sure how to set it so that I can see it one at a time. Thank you. Allow me to make a couple preliminary comments. <clears throat> it appears that Jesus had a propensity to uh, hang out with the tax collectors. It says that all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near him. They were not well received. It, it is, they were a kind of people, they were a sect of people that was despised by the general public. They were not well received in their culture. Not because of them being a lower class of people. In fact, many of them were wealthy and uh, were considered the upper echelon of their society and their community. But probably were despised, thank you Josh, probably were despised and social outcasts in their society based on the fact that they were devious and probably took advantage of the people, at least the, the, uh, the, the tax collectors uh, that took uh, advantage of people, but also the sinners were not considered clean by the, the general populace. I am impressed with the fact that it says, did you catch the fact that it says that the, the, these scoundrels, <laughs> well, the, the, they, were the, they were not just the, uh, uh, the predominant few from the crowd. It says that all of them drew near Jesus. Uh, I, I, that, that caught my attention. Uh, the amount of people is insignificant. How many actually gathered there? That's in, in, uh, insignificant. But what is significant is the fact that it says that all of them, all of them drew near Jesus. And uh, even more interesting was the fact that they drew near to him. It wasn't that Jesus drew near to them. Did you catch that? Tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Jesus. And uh, I just had to ask myself the question, what was it that caused them to hang out with Jesus? you the same I'd like to ask you the question are sinners attracted to you are sinners attracted to you do you draw sinners now I know that we have teaching and a lot is said about the biblical mandate to go out into the world and teach the gospel but I would also ask the question are people coming to you that do not know the gospel now, if they are, be careful how you answer this, because if you say, yes, people are, sinners are attracted to me, I'm going to ask you the next question. Why? Why? Why are they attracted? Is it because, is it because there is, that you share some of the, there, there's a commonality and you share some of the same values? And so there's that kind of friendship there? Or is it because they understand that there's a vast dis difference of values and lifestyle between you and them, yet your love and care for them is compelling them to come draw near to you. And if that's the case, I applaud you. I suspect that's what these people sense from Jesus. Second thing I want to talk about before just to set the stage is the fact where it says that 
that uh, their complaint, it was the complaint of the scribes and the Pharisees. It says, this man, referring to Jesus, uh, eats with sinners and, uh, and, and, and receives them. <clears throat> now, in order to get the full impact of that statement, we need to understand some of the cultural norms of that day. In the ancient world, table fellowship indicated acceptance of other guests. So when you sat down to eat with someone, you indicated that you accepted that person into your circle of fellowship. The custom of eating together was a sign of acceptance in the Middle East, and the guests who were welcomed uh, brought honor to your home. So if you can understand that, you can understand why they were distraught at the fact that Jesus was eating with these people. Jesus did the same thing with the tax collectors and sinners. There was nothing in it for him. It wasn't that he was getting anything out of this. But Jesus showed them this love and, and acceptance because it was simply who Jesus was. It's just who he was. He didn't let status or cultural norms dictate his relationship with people. He transcended what was culturally acceptable to reach out to a group of people that normally was despised by the general populace. I'm impressed with that kind of passion. And I want to be more like that kind of person. Thirdly, there's a third observation I want to make. <coughs> and that I find it ex that, it's, that it's significant that as Jesus spoke this parable... Uh, he, 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 he mentions, it says specifically, that he spoke this parable with them. That there were three different stories in this parable. Okay? Why is it recorded then as saying this parable when there are, as singular, when there were three different stories? Now, I'm, I'm not going to make a big deal out of this, uh, except I want to just have you think about something. Now, I, can, I have taken these, these different stories. We probably oftentimes refer to each one of these stories as separate parables, and I've preached on them separately. I've preached just on the, the uh, woman that lost the coin as a parable. Jesus takes all three of them and calls it one parable this parable uh, for you English you students yeah, who did not like English in school uh, I want to explain something about the English language that might help you understand this passage a little bit better the English language uh, makes comparisons between nouns in order to emphasize size weight um, uh, composition, color, age, many other things. We take nouns and we make comparisons between them in order to understand the difference between them. Okay? What is the, what is, what is, what, what do we call a descriptive word? Adjectives, okay? We have adjectives that describes the noun. A big house. Big is the adjective of house. But when we compare, there, there are two types of adjectives. Uh, when, when we make comparisons, and in both cases, one noun will be bigger or less or, or broader or whatever the case may be than the other one. And we call that a comparative adjective. An example would be, my horse is bigger than your horse. Big is the adjective. A comparative adjective, we would add the ER to it. It's bigger than. So we're comparing two nouns. My horse versus your horse. However, there's a second type of descriptive word that we call superlative adjective. 
And that is when we are comparing more than three nouns. And in this case, the comparison of the noun, it takes it to the highest degree. So an example of that, I have the biggest horse in the pasture, meaning that it is the biggest of all of them that are in the pasture. So we have big, bigger, biggest. Okay? We take this in our English language to compare between nouns. Okay? Thin, thinner, thinnest, famous, more famous, most famous, powerful, less powerful, least powerful. That's how we compare nouns. However, not every language or culture have superlative progressions. Okay? In the Grecian language, they do not have a progressive term to emphasize something as good, better, or best. They repeat it three times to build up to something very important. That is the kind of progression that we are seeing in this passage of Scripture, and hence why he called it this parable. Okay? Each story had a common thought building to a progressive level of importance, hence a parable. Now, again, if you break it out and say that each one of these are parables and you teach on it, I'm fine with that. But think of it in this terms today. And then the last note, just the last uh, observation that I would like to make is the fact that he says he spoke this parable. And I'd like to ask the question, who did he speak this parable to? Was it the was it the tax collectors and the sinners? Was it the scribes and Pharisees? Or was it the disciples? The disciples were obviously there because they wrote about it. So who, who, did, they sp who did he speak it to? What do you think? Absolutely. He spoke it to the scribes and Pharisees because they simply could not receive the idea that Jehovah God could reach out to the despicable tax collectors and sinners A.W. Tozer says they had an innate notion of God. They just couldn't see Jehovah God being that big. It was their flawed understanding of Jesus and his heartbeat that motivated him to share this parable. So, this brings us to the core of the message this morning. I would like to look at three similarities between these stories. I'd like to look at three similarities between these stories, and then I'd like to look at two dissimilarities between the stories and see if we can catch something about the heart of God. The first thing that I see, there was an item of value that was lost. As we, as we mentioned previously, the, 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 the stories are thematically related. One of the common denominators in all three stories, woven into the three stories, is the realization that something valuable was lost. A lamb was lost, a, uh, a coin was lost, and a son was lost. Typically, a lot of energy goes into finding a lost item, particularly if it is an item of value, if it holds an item of value. Summer of 2013, our family did a little getaway. We went up to Niagara Falls for a short vacation. And the morning that we started out, I think I started out driving. And I drove for a couple hours. I got tired. And so glad we switched. We pulled off the side of the road. Glad started driving. And um, later on, we stopped for a potty break. And when I got out, I couldn't find my phone. And we searched. And by the way, we had used, we had borrowed Dad's van because we were, it was all of us that were going up, and Bronson was coming up from Faith Builders to meet us up at Niagara Falls, and we were going to spend some time up there, and then we were going to come down for the rest of the weekend at, at Faith Builders with Bronson and then head home. We searched that van inside and out. We looked up and high and down and low, and we looked all over that van. And this sickening feeling came over me. Just a brand new iPhone that I had only had several months and just this 
gloom that began to hang over me, and not as much the phone as, you know, I had to cancel the, I had to cancel the account, and I didn't have insurance on it, and, and we were in Canada by this time, and it was just like, oh, you know, I can't believe, I went into, I, I had gone into the bathroom, I went back into the bathroom, I thought, did I lay it down somewhere, I went back out, and I was just sort of trying to get my bearings, what are we going to do, and and all of a sudden, I sort of heard a shriek from one of the girls. And there was Candace. She said, here it is. And she had looked into this compartment that many of us had looked into multiple times. And there was a slot in that compartment that you could not see with the visible eye. You literally had to sort of reach in behind it. And she did that. This time, she opened it up. She looked in, and she reached in there and fell around. And somehow, that phone had slipped in behind that little compartment and we found the phone and uh, I know you say it's just it, it was just a phone and it's it, it, you know but the point is when something is lost we look and we put a lot of energy into finding what was I was so relieved when we finally found that phone each of the three stories reveals some level of discomfort and angst at the thought of losing something valuable I'm sure you've all had stories of times that you lost something valuable. It's not a good feeling. It creates a good bit of distress, which I'm sure you can identify with in these stories. So the first thing we see is that an item of value was lost. We see it in all three stories. The second thing, the second similarity that we see is that the item was found. The item of value was found. Uh, we see it in, in where, the, where, where the shepherd went out, and, and when he found it, it says, and when he found the sheep, uh, in the second story, he says that the, the woman uh, lit a lamp, and she swept the house, and she searched carefully until she finds it, and when she found it, so she found the coin. In the third instant, we see that the, fa- the, the son said to himself, I'm going to arise and go to my father. And when he arose and came to his father, they were reinstated. He was found. Similarly, we see in each of these stories, the items that were once lost are now found. Persistence paid off. The lamb was brought back to the fold. The coin was retrieved. The son found his way back home. And then the third similarity is that there was a common response. There was a response of joy when the lost was found. Um, There was festivity and rejoicing when the lost was found. It says about the shepherd, he says, when he called together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. The woman. When she found the, uh, the coin, she gathered her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. And the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe. Put a ring on his hand. Put sandals on his feet. Bring out the fatted calf. Let us be eat and be merry. And later on it says that when the party started, they began to be merry. There was a common response between, there was a similar response between the three stories. There was definitely a sense of merriment in all three instances. In fact, it reached beyond the scope of just the owner who had lost the item to begin with. The upside is that it, it brought together a community. Friends and neighbors were, invo- were invited to join the celebration. The owners didn't rejoice alone. Rather, they wanted others to delight in their find. So, the three similarities that we see in these stories is that an item of value was lost, an item of value was and there was a response of joy when the lost was found. But possibly the heart of God is seen in a greater way in the dissimilarities of the three stories than in the similarities of the story. And I want you to pick up on what is not common between 
the three stories. The first dissimilarity is found in the value of the lost item. Consider the difference in the range of value between the items. Now, availability determines value. And I want to talk about this a little bit. I want to help you understand that, that the more something is available, it helps, or the less something is available, it can help determine the value of that item. Okay? Let's, let's say that this person in this, in this story had 100 sheep. And one went missing. That means that one one-hundredth of the whole flock went missing. He still had 99. But he still went out and he went looking for that sheep. In the, in the story of the coin, it says that she had 10 coins and one got lost. One was lost. That's one-tenth of the amount that she originally had. In the last story, we have one son. And when that was lost, what did he have left? The one that was lost. He had two sons in the story. I'm saying, the, I'm talking about the one that was lost. What is left? Nothing. It's one of one. There's nothing left. Now, we know how this works. Uh, paintings. An original painting. When there is only one, that's why people pay millions of dollars for something that we know is only one of. Let's think of it in this term. One of the ways that we determine value is in terms of availability. One lamb out of 100 will not carry the same value as one of 10 does. And one of 10 doesn't carry the same value as only one does. So availability helps determine value. You recall the story of Nathan the prophet? Remember Nathan the prophet when he came to David? And he confronted him with his, with his sin of, uh, of adultery with Bathsheba. What story did he use? He talked about the man that had a whole flock of sheep. And the little boy or the, or the person that had only one lamb. The family that only had one lamb. And this rich man came, took that lamb, and, and, and he took it to make a, a party for his friends. I mean, David became unglued. He's like, wow, that guy ought to be killed. And Nathan said, you're the man. Very impacting for him. Now, let's think of it, let's think of it in another way. Let's think of, of this one block representing a million. I'm going to work the other way, okay? Let's say that this is worth $1 million. And when you have a million dollars and nothing is missing, what do you have left? A million dollars. So let's say that this block now is divided by 10. This million dollars, the one that is missing is worth how much? 100,000. And what do you have left? 900,000. Now that's, now $100,000 is very substantial. <laughs> it's a lot of money. But if you still have 900,000 left, there's some absorption there that you can, uh, you know, there, there's a little bit of shock there that you can, 900,000 is still a lot left over. Okay, yeah, yeah, I know you've lost 100,000, but you still have 100, 900,000 left over. Let's go to the next block. Let's say it's divided into 100, and what is one that's lost? 10,000, right? What do you have left? 990,000. 
So when you lose the first block, you've lost it all. When you go to the next step and you lose one, you still have a lot. When you go to the last block and you lose one, you can take 900, you can, you can lose, you can afford to lose $10,000. Now, now if we, if we say that you only make 40000 in a year and you lose 10000 that's significant, okay? But if you have a hundred, if you have a million dollars and you lose one hundredth of it, you still have a lot to go on. So, we determine value by availability. That's my point. The question is, however, is this the point that Jesus was trying to drive home? Now, I know you haven't had a lot of time to think about it. I see someone shaking, or not, or shaking their head no. And I agree with that. I would concede that Jesus was not, that's not the point Jesus was trying to drive home. I like to think of you in this terms. Value is also determined by emotional attachment. And I believe Jesus used the example of a sheep because it hit core to a Middle Eastern person. My heart does not palpitate when I think of losing one sheep out of a hundred. Sheep are sheep, right? You can always buy another sheep. And if you have 99 left, well, okay, you still have 99 left. It just doesn't connect with me because I'm not a shepherd. But these people grew up around sheep. It was their livelihood. They were attached to them. Some of these guys lived with them day in and day out. When he spoke about sheep, it connected to them. A person emotionally attached to a lamb because it has the ability to respond back in love and allegiance to the master. That's exactly what what Nathan the prophet did with that parable that he spoke to David. He talked about the family that had a family pet, a sheep, a lamb. And he connected to it because he had spent years out as a shepherd with his lamb, with his sheep. It, it, it connected to him. Years ago, my cousin had a German shepherd dog. And uh, this dog that they had had pups. And it was nursing the little pups. At the same time, they lived on the farm. At the same time, their pig had a litter of piglets, and one of them was a runt. So they brought this little runt pig into the house to nurse it to health. And in the meantime, somehow it attached itself to the mother German shepherd and began to suck off of the mother German shepherd along with the other pups. Well, Arnold, as it became fondly known to the family, began to grow. And they say it was the craziest thing. As the pups grew and as Arnold grew, the big dog would run across the yard and the little puppies would run after it. And here comes Arnold, you know. And he said the mom and the pups would stop and they'd look back and they'd wait for Arnold to catch up. And then they'd go running off again, and you know, and he'd go running. It was the craziest thing. Well, Arnold grew to be a big pig. And Arnold lay on the front steps. And so it was the most embarrassing thing. If people would come over to the house, here's Arnold laying on the front steps. So Arnold had to be taken care of, right? And they discussed, by this time, they had grown fond of Arnold. What are we going to do with Arnold? And finally, you know, prudence won over. And Arnold went to the slaughterhouse. And they brought Arnold back in packages of burgers. But no one could eat Arnold. And they ended up giving the meat away. They had grown attached to Arnold, okay? There was an emotional bond. And most of us could point back to a dog or a pet or an animal of some kind that produced a great deal of emotional attachment and hence value was placed on that item. 
The second illustration, Jesus used an inanimate object. Did you catch that? He used an inanimate object as an example. A coin does not have the ability to love back or respond with allegiance to the master. A coin is a coin. It has no ability to respond back to the master. It simply is what it is. All attachment is produced by the worth the owner places on the object. Okay? So, you have a dish in your china hut, china hutch that great-great Aunt Matilda gave to you. And you're fondly attached to this piece of dish. I can look at that glass, piece of glass, and again, my heart just does not palpitate. It's just a piece of glass because there is no emotional attachment to it. But for you, it is worth something because there's a connection there that has, that has lent itself to some value. <clears throat> some scholars indicate that the coin that was lost may have been tied to the woman's dowry gift. Possibly. Whether it was or not, I don't know. We can't say that for sure. What I do know is that it meant a great deal to her. I also suspect that there was more of an emotional value attached to it than an economic value. Uh, I say that because when she found it, it says that she gathered her friends and she threw a big party. It is quite possible that the money she spent on the party was equal to or more than, cost more than what the coin itself was worth. Because a lot of scholars would agree that Jesus was referencing a a drachma, which was the equivalent of possibly a day's wage. So it could be that the coin itself wasn't worth as much as the value that the woman had placed upon it. Okay? So value increases when there is an emotional attachment to it. That's why the saying goes, one man's trash is another man's treasure. But in the third illustration, Jesus uses, he shifts to an entirely different set of values, a different level of value. How do you place value on a son or a daughter? Do you see the dissimilarity between the value of the items that he's talking about? Jesus is building up to the worth of a son or a child. The worth of a child far exceeds any lamb or coin that is on the face of the earth. Nothing, absolutely nothing, compares to equal value. And I'm sure if we were to ask Kermit and Elsie this morning, when they lost their son Adrian in a car accident years ago, they would have gladly sold their house in exchange to have their son back. Because you just can't place value. You can't place monetary value on a son or a daughter. And in this dissimilarity of value, we catch something about the heart of God. Can we fathom the love that he has for each person to take him to the cross and to go through what he did? We talked about it already this morning. Can we catch that kind of love in the Father heart of Jesus. The second dissimilarity is the energy that is put into finding the item that was lost that I think also reveals an aspect of God's character. Let's think about the energy in all three cases. The energy produced in finding the lamb (coughs) in the coin was very similar. The shepherd left the 99, went out into the wilderness, looked for the lamb that was lost. Why did he put so much energy into it when he had 99 more in his care? The energy the woman put into finding the coin, she brings light into the subject. She gets out her feather duster. She begins to search every nook and cranny of her home. She turns over the sofa. She looks under the bed. She checks behind the dresser. She moves her pots of plants. She combs that house inside and out to try to find her lost coin. However, 
there's a very different response with the father when the son is lost. What does he do? He watches and waits. Have you ever thought about that? He watches and he waits. And why the difference of response? The difference is tied to the value of the child. What brought value to the son was different than the value of the lamb and the, and the coin. And the difference was because there was an eternal soul attached to this individual, or to this item, I should say. There was an eternal soul that was attached to it. They are eternal beings. And when a person makes a willful choice, Jesus never violates that decision. He never imposes himself on our choice. He waits, he looks, he longs, he hopes, he prays, he yearns, he even looks down the road. But he never forces us back to him. He watches and he waits because he never violates our choice. Friends, the story of the resurrection is only as good as you avail yourself to it. He will not impose it on you. He never imposes it on us. And that's because of the value he places on us. He wants our response willingly to come back to him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much. Oh, Father, for the gift that you have given to us. And Lord, what a gift it is, but it is only as good as we avail ourselves to it. You do not impose it on us. We're grateful, Father. We are grateful that you have given us insight to receive that gift. And for those who are here this morning that have not received it, I would pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you would stir what is inside of them and help them avail themselves to that gift. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.